Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. This is episode 90 of October 27, 2022. As always, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by going on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate. You can donate in fiat currency or cryptocurrency if that is uh, your uh, preference. My guest this week is Jan Burdinski. He has been an auto executive for 10 years and currently advises car makers, suppliers and energy providers on how to master the transition to zero emissions. He serves as the managing partner of Berlin Communication, a boutique consultancy operating in Brussels and Berlin. And uh, we're talking about uh, the car protectionism that I mentioned in last week's episodes that uh, French President Emmanuel Macron wants to implement in order to protect European car manufacturers. So you'll hear the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, railway companies agree on a framework to uh, get you on the next train if you missed the previous one. Uh, so that is between state-run uh, operators. So quite interesting there. And I'm talking to our new research manager at the CCC, Emil Panzao, about uh, Romania's uh, accession to the Schengen area. Uh, Emil is from Romania, so he had some insights on that too. So you'll hear all about that. I would say actually right away. So first up, yeah, we have research manager Emil Panzao to talk us through uh, some of the ramifications of uh, the existing, ongoing, but maybe eventually to be lifted veto by the Netherlands on uh, Romania and Bulgaria's accession to the Schengen area. As you know, Romania and Bulgaria are members of the European Union, but they're not members of the, the Schengen Accord. That means that they can't freely travel. Uh, at least without uh, getting uh, uh, their IDs or passports uh, checked at the border. So yeah, let's listen to that exchange. All right, so Emil, thanks for joining us. We want to talk today about an issue that is uh, that has been in uh, that has been in conversation in the European Union for a while. Um, so the Schengen area extends to some, but not all, EU member states. And Romania and Bulgaria have been two countries that are members of the European Union, but not yet part of the Schengen area. Uh, can you, for the listeners who might not be familiar with this issue, explain a bit why that's the case? What are sort of the reasons why uh, both of these countries have, have not yet joined the Schengen area? Well, thank you very much for having me on, on the podcast, Bill. To start off, to understand the way Romania and Bulgaria might be feeling right now, let me give you a very short general background first. So the Schengen area was set up in 1985 as an agreement between member states about abolishing internal border controls. That means borders between member states within the EU do not apply, making essentially fulfilling the whole promise of freedom of movement for people, goods and services by the 1986 Single Market Act. Whenever you, uh, you know, go across, uh, on a cross-country trip across the EU and you notice that you've just passed the border from Hungary into Austria and you just see a sign there, oh, that's it, nothing else was there, that's part of the Schengen area. Uh, all member states have to join the Schengen area. So that applies not just to Romania and Bulgaria, but also to Cyprus and Croatia. The only one that's been accepted is Ireland because of Northern Ireland. But that's a very, very different story. Uh, <clears throat> it's important to remember that Romania and Bulgaria have been trying to get into the Schengen area for a very long time now. 11 years, in fact. It's also important to remember that both states actually fulfill the technical criteria that the EU has set up. So you have to 
check a couple of boxes to make sure that internal controls are tight enough relative to external controls for you to part of, be part of the Schengen area. That means something like checking visas the right, having the proper air borders in place, police cooperation, personal data protection, things of that sort. But some states like the Netherlands, Denmark, Germany, Finland, Sweden were worried to let Romania and Bulgaria in. The reason being that of corruption, things like goods being smuggled through the port of Constanza being a recurrent worry when it came to Romania. But many of these issues have been addressed over the years. Both Romania and Bulgaria signed up to the 2007 cooperation and verification mechanism, meaning that they set up an entirely new committee for investigating corruption in these two states. And they, both of these states have been reforming their border controls. We both went on massive anti-corruption campaigns. And we've been getting positive feedback about all of these things, including this month when a fact-finding mission from the EU found nothing wrong with either states. And let's remember in the context of the Russo-Ukrainian war, the Russian invasion of, the, of Ukraine, We've had a million Ukrainian refugees making it through Romania, through the rest of the EU, and everything is fine. I mean, if that's not a real stress test of, uh, of border controls, I don't know what is. Right. So um, some of the objections seem to be falling apart when we look at the evidence. However, there seems to be sort of a political reason why, especially a country such as the Netherlands, keeps holding it back. Now, your active ran a piece that suggested that this could fuel Euroscepticism in both Romania and Bulgaria. How likely do you think that is? Yeah, so uh, I, I saw those comments by uh, members of Renew Europe, for instance, uh, saying that we might be seeing a new wave of EU skepticism due to this. I'm sort of less, uh, maybe more optimistic might be the way to put it, because of two reasons. One, one of them being that within Romania, at least, the way that this has been perceived has been more to do about uh, the Netherlands exporting their own internal politics um, onto the EU rather than something to do with the EU itself. Uh, we know that the Dutch parliament was the one that voted on the 18th of October for um, for these sorts of, for, you know, revising Romania and Bulgaria's status, even though the EU parliament just had a massive vote in favor, 547 votes for and only 40 odd abstention and it's only I think 47 against so I don't think that at least in Romania from my experience people hold it against the EU and there's another thing to remember is that when it comes to politics internal issues still matter more than external issues and the EU is seen as an external issue so when you think about parties like the Pop populist Aur in Romania the alliance for uniting Romanians they mostly campaign on cost of living crisis attitudes towards the Ukraine uh, towards Ukraine Neon refugees, things of that issue, which are seen as more important internally than EU politics per se. So I'm I'm not sure if that is necessarily the fire of EU of populism, because again, Euroscepticism is an external thing, and it, it wasn't really about the EU; it was about the Dutch. Fair enough. Um, so in uh, in a, in maybe one or two sentences, uh, your prediction: uh, When do you think uh, Romania will be able to actually access the Schengen area? It's hard to make predictions, but uh, let's give it a go. Well, yeah, I mean, with everything that's happened, that's happening, let's get a stab at predictions, I guess, as well. Um, I, I think there's a decent chance still that Mark Rutte 
might still simply abstain on the EU Council. So remember that the EU Council has to approve Romania and Bulgaria's uh, accession to Schengen, meaning that all 27 states have to say yes, or at least none of them has to say no, which is very important. So Ruta might use that to say, you know, I'm going to abstain on this because he might be able to fulfill his promise towards the Dutch parliament to say, look, I didn't get them in, but I also didn't say no. Because again, he's the only holdout right now. So that's puts him in a very, very thorny position relative to other EU states. And that might be a simple way out. All right. Well, that would, that's as much time as we have for today. Emil, uh, much appreciated for your insights on the topic. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. All right, next up, we have railways in Europe agreeing to uh, create a framework which allows passengers of trains who have missed their previous connection uh, to take the next train, even though that might be with a different operator. So there's about 15 railway operators that have done this. Um, so we have Czech Republic's Czeske Drahi, we have Luxembourg's CFL, Deutsche Bahn in Germany, Denmark's DSB, NS from the Netherlands, Austria's ÖBB, Spain's Renfe, the Swiss SBB and BLS, uh, Sweden's SJ, Belgium's SNCB, France's SNCF, Slovenia's SJ, uh, Trenitalia from Italy and Slovakia's JSSK. So all of these state-run operators will allow you to substitute your missed connection with uh, one of these others. And of course, that is something that specifically applies to the border. I don't assume uh, Luxembourg CFL is running a lot of connections in Spain. So this is something specifically for border uh, commutes, at least, uh, uh, can definitely be the case. And I think uh, that's very positive. I know that some of the uh, operators have done this already. I know that if you use CFL um, uh, in Luxembourg to go to, uh, well, either direction of the three borders available, I think you can always substitute your ticket because those are integrated and, you know, shared between those two operators. So that already exists, but I think this is sort of a, a, a larger agreement, especially as some of these operators are also going more long distance. I know that UBB and NS have a cooperation on uh, night jet trains, connections between uh, Vienna and, and Amsterdam, for instance, where you have a night train. Uh, Deutsche Bahn does similar things. So I think that's where we're going with this. I think ultimately that is a good service. It's cool integration. It's obviously complicated to see, you know, how that is going to be shared um, in terms of the cost mechanism of that. I know that Deutsche Bahn had considerable problems on um, the, the, the overcrowding of trains during the nine euro ticket period this summer. And so obviously other operators don't necessarily want to get dragged into this and you do pay different things for different operators i mean in luxembourg you don't pay for cfl whatsoever if you're traveling domestically because there's a free of charge system for public transport uh, but then if you go abroad you need to pay your uh, uh you know your difference in the in the ticket there because you know even if cfl might only be going to to trier or further away uh, you would still have to so pay for the um pay for the, the, the rail network use, for the infrastructure use, and that is what CFL is paying, not charging you necessarily for their, uh, for their train services. Um, so, uh, so I think ultimately it's a good thing, but of course the European uh, Union is not entirely uh, convinced yet that that is the rail integration needed because um, what the European Commission has been pushing for is a ticketing system, so a unitary ticketing system where um, you, maybe it could be one platform, or it could be integrated tickets where 
not necessarily like the interrail ticket, which is like that is a ticket that is actually valid on multiple railways. This would be sort of one place where you can buy all of these. Now, some people use platforms such as Omeo and Trainline that allow you to combine certain tickets. It's not as widely available yet. And even though you might get one barcode, that doesn't always work on every train system. I myself have made the experiences buying from one specific website that, by the way, also charges you fees for that. Um, is not always as uh, convenient as you might think, and you might still have to go into your email uh, and, and pull up a ticket. So integration there would make sense. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, private railway operators have, do, have been doing similar things already and have been joining systems such as Interrail uh, as well. So I think um, we're getting somewhere in terms of the integration, making transport more available, but ultimately this is about the infrastructure. Uh, people use trains if they're convenient, and I think that's... Uh, somewhere where certain countries need to sort of think about how they get to that point. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a lot of public spending. It can also just be concessioning those to, to private companies that are willing to build the infrastructure or operate the infrastructure that maybe has existed in the past and can be revived. I think there's a lot to be able to do there on trains. But um, yeah, work needs to be done before we can really offer this as a viable alternative to many people. And last but not least, we have Jan Brodinski from Germany. He has been an auto executive for 10 years and currently advises car makers, suppliers and energy providers on how to master the transition to zero emissions. He serves as the managing partner of Berlin Communication, a boutique consultancy operating in Brussels and Berlin. We talked about, about the electric vehicle market in Europe. Emmanuel Macron has suggested recently that there should be more protectionism. So uh, let's uh, delve into the, the issues there. Uh, what is the electric vehicle market like? Is it desirable in the first place? And what is really going to happen to manufacturers in Europe? Uh, and, and how are consumers going to choose the car that is right for them? So uh, let's delve in. It was a really, really interesting conversation. All right, Rian, we're very happy that we have you on the Consumer Podcast, and here is why. I'm reading Politico, and here in Politico, it says that Emmanuel Macron, the French president, says that, quote, the Americans are buying American and pursuing a very aggressive strategy of state aid. The Chinese are closing their market. We cannot be the only area, the most virtuous in terms of the climate, which considers which consider, sorry, that there is no European preference. And then he also says... I strongly defend a European preference in this area, meaning that we should have some type of protectionist measures in order to protect the European electric vehicle industry. He refers also to the fact that rental car companies are buying increasingly from abroad, meaning either American or Chinese. So you have been in this industry for a while. You know the car industry in Europe quite well. What's your initial reaction to the comments by the French president? This is, I, I, you know, I mean, Emmanuel Macron is a, you know, he, he's a special character. And um, when he addresses something, um, you you should actually looking behind behind the scenes, you know, like a, a French protectionism approach. You know, how many, how many parts of a French car actually come from France? Hmm, not so many. Um, Emmanuel Macron was the guy who did the, you know, the Paris Climate Summit and the, the commitment that we could become uh, climate neutral in 2050. And I just imagine, you know, like with, with, the, with the two big um, French car manufacturers, Renault and Stellantis Group, you know, if they would be relying on French lithium, French cobalt, French nickel to, you know, to have all these fancy electric vehicles, 
it's just not going to happen. It is, it is not even going to happen uh, on a European scale if, if Macron is considered to be one of the, you know, the two main leaders in the European Union. Um, we simply don't have the raw material. And, uh, you know, he's, he's just camouflaging his own, um, you know, shortcomings. If you look, if you look, for example, at the um, at the level of charging and hydrogen infrastructure that we see across the European Union, we have um, Netherlands number one, we have Luxembourg number two, then comes Germany, and then you know there's a there's a big void, and and all the perceived southern European um, member states like France, Italy, Spain. I mean, they they have they're lacking behind in infrastructure. So even if the French the two French manufacturers that both have the government as as a as a major shareholder, if they wanted, they could probably not even sell the, their cars in their own motherland, which um, which makes it which makes it so absurd. And when we're coming to the you know the orders of uh, rental car companies of um, of Chinese manufacturing uh, manufactured vehicles. Um, the Chinese control the raw materials in the in the EV world, and um, there you know you can you can be protectionist about this, or you can live up to the reality. It's just you know as if you know like has France dug out the mineral oil to to refine it and and create diesel and and gasoline? No, they did not. They they bought it from the Saudis and and the other OPEC cartel um, member states. And and it's this it's the same now with raw materials. You know, would we want to start mining in in Central Europe? No, we have you know we have concerned citizens. Concerned citizens don't want you know dirty mining to be happening in our backyard, um, but but rather you know go to go for for cobalt, go to um, uh, the, the DRC in, in 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 Congo for lithium, go to. Um, go to Chile for rare earth metals, go to China and, uh, you know, have it been done somewhere else so that other people are actually seeing the, the uh, devastating of the environmental impact that uh, the new EV revolution is actually going to do. So Macron, you know, as, as always, you know, when someone is well-meaning, it is it is very often the opposite of well done and uh, in this case it is the same you know protectionism has never served us well um has never led to more innovation has never led to low prices for consumers uh, and therefore um it is you know it's it's a typical macron it's a joke I, I would even I would even think that if we didn't have the single market, Macron could easily make the same case about German cars being too competitive and too cheap, the labor being too cheap in Germany. There's always there's always a claim to be made here. So what but I'm what I'm hearing from you is that um, uh, one of the problems is that essentially the infrastructure is not there. People are not essentially buying as many EVs as they might because there's nowhere to charge them, and that is clearly a problem for for many people. If you want to get from A to B, uh, charging infrastructure is important. So is it essentially that we don't have transparency on what the marketplace can look like because not everyone feels comfortable getting an EV because, well, we don't know yet how it would work? Is Could that also be changing the marketplace quite a bit? You know, I'm, as as you as you might guess, I'm, I'm not the most euphoric when it comes to European integration, but sometimes Europe has a role to play and, and Europe did play a role in the alternative fuel infrastructure directive that was adopted in 2014 that that kind of like that was the legislation to create a framework in which you know 
charging and and refueling infrastructure would be would be laid out for for zero and low emission fuels now it's it's only it's only zero emission fuels but the member states yeah among them france said like yeah but we don't want to have binding targets because binding targets is actually you know um is 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 minimizing our our leg room in which to operate and then in the end nothing happened you know and uh, if you if you if you see the you know like I have I have driven electric cars over the past ten years um, you know because my employers kindly um, offered them to me as part of my compensation package and and ten years ago it was a disaster to charge them and the batteries were were still on you know in an entry level um, the batteries have become better. Um, but charging is still, you know, it's the main bottleneck. The cars are there. Even the the purchase incentives that I see, you know, not so not so favorable, um, are there. But if if people if people believe their their level of convenience is not met when buying an electric vehicle, then they will simply not buy that vehicle and rather go for a you know for a plug-in hybrid or for a regular petrol or diesel engine car. Um, that serves them well because that's you know you don't want to have the, the these 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 nightmares of actually looking at like how much range do I have left and is the next charger that I'm that I need to take is that a open um, and not temporarily out of service and b how many people are standing there in 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 front of in front of the line ahead of me. And you know, in in a in a in a regular gas station, you know, it takes like three four minutes to fuel a car. Um, with a with a normal with a normal charger that you can find on the highways of like fifty kilowatts, it takes an hour. You know, and if you have five cars in front of you and you have two chargers, then you know this is like it's it's going to be a nice three hour pit stop just like to make the next three four hundred kilometers. Is this convenient? No, you know. In my, in my, in my, in, it is, it is not convenient, and therefore, um, and it is, with you know, with the current electricity prices rising sharply, it is also not. There is also not the competitive advantage on the pricing anymore. It's just the feel-good factor is still there because you do not emit emissions through the tailpipe. Your emissions are coming, you know, in in most EU member states. Are coming through the chimneys of coal power plants, which is the number one source of energy at the moment. At least I can say this for Germany. Um, way way before renewables, and then of course, um, you know, you have you know, you have some member states like France that have that rely heavily on um, on nuclear. And I do believe nuclear is is a way to um, to help decarbonizing um, our economies. But uh, again, Germany has opted to shut them down and rather open new coal plant as if the climate, uh, the Paris Climate Accord happened without us. I mean, this is we promised we would. And now we're saying, oh, no, let's, you know, let's let's reopen power plants that, that are powered with coal um, simply because um, we we are so anti-nuclear and we are anti, anti-cheap energy um, that we, you know, that we that we want to you know put more burden on our people right i mean in germany and as with many environmentalist movements in europe there's also an opposition towards individual mobility altogether i guess some people think we should all use trains and metros but um 
that that that, that is it, it is it is it mm. it is it is true you know when when the you know the the environmental left and the ngos when they're when they're coming say like you know we have to we have to get off the dirty cars and have to get into the clean cars ultimately you know when when we have all when we all have bought our, our battery electric vehicles um and i'm i'm quite critical about uh, batteries um then you know they will say oh yeah but the environmental impact of the batteries and i mean this is this is highly toxic stuff and because of the energy the energy density a, a battery of you know a significant size this is a bomb um and you know we we have had airlines that were that were grounded for for weeks um because they couldn't they couldn't control the, the batteries and you don't want to have a battery you know um catch fire mid-air and certainly you don't want to have a battery catch fire um even on the road because it just does not stop you know it's not that you put a little bit of of water or, or foam on it and it's gone no it will it will be a long long process yeah there was an there was an underground parking a lot in luxembourg where and uh, i think a tesla caught fire and then uh, the thing is it took them about three or four days until they could actually put it out because you need a special foam and this this it's it's high it's highly it's highly complicated what i wanted to what i wanted to yeah no, well, I, I wanted to I wanted to shift gears a little bit um, uh, for in in the in, in the interest of time, and that is because um, no matter I, I don't think individual mobility is going to go anywhere uh, in 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 the next in the next decade or so. But what is going to happen? It seems the EU wants to do is to shift really to electric now. I'm, I'm interested about consumer behavior because that reflects a bit of some of the comments on Macron. It seems that Macron is not confident that the European car manufacturers have a real future with electric vehicles. And what I've been able to see is in my family, in my family, everybody always went for German cars. It was either going to be Volkswagen or it's going to be BMW. Luxembourgers have a thing like that. With electric cars, people in my family just think about it differently as if there was like a, a genuine shift so they they think about like oh this is electric so i mean anything goes at this point right it's a completely new market is it that european policymakers are worried that people are not going to stick to their uh, to their european car brands now that we go electric is that the fear it, you know the 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 legislation for limiting co2 emissions is a is a very clear invitation for um, especially for Asian manufacturers to basically conquer Europe and eat into the market shares of the incumbent car makers. And we we have seen we have seen this happening. You know, the, my my former my former company Hyundai and and Kia are very uh, you know they have with the with the rise in electrification they have gained massive market shares across Europe. Um, we we have seen we have seen Toyota with the hybrid technology, you know, um, two decades earlier, actually making great inroads and uh, and and showing that uh, Asian technology is sometimes superior of what uh, to what the the European car makers are doing, and um, and now you know we're um, you know, three four years into the into the chip crisis where there's a major shortage also another thing you know does does france produce enough chips for their own cars probably not this is you know macron should do his homework before he comes out with with, with ideas you know on on actually doing a europe first thing you know europe europe has you know has had the best combustion engines um that is that is very clear and europe has has very high level like quality levels but on quality levels the asian manufacturers like toyota or, or again Hyundai 
uh, have actually caught up and there's not a big difference. There is a bit, there is a difference when you compare a European car to a Tesla. Tesla are, Teslas are just not made for, you know, for many, many years. And you see that after a while that, you know, things start cracking and it's, it's not the same, it's not the same level of uh, like the, the love for the detail in which, in which the car is being put together. Um, but, um, you know, I, I have, I recently, I, I was, I was asked by journalists on, you know, is, is the, um, is, is the, the, have we peaked already in in European car technology and and where's where's the future? And I would definitely say yes. The future is the future is is Asian. No, um, simply simply because that's where the market is. We Europeans believe we are the center of the world because in our map Europe is the center of the world. Well, in an Asian map, Europe is is somewhere in the left corner where you know 500 million um, eu or let's say european citizens uh, are living and trying to dictate um you know climate climate rules and and safety standards etc cetera, etc cetera, to the rest of the world well that's not happening anymore you know in this you know between between japan korea china india you have you have four 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 and a half billion people uh, living there and the least thing they care about is what Europeans are doing in terms of, you know, um, setting global standards on uh, on anything car related. They set these standards themselves, and um, and and you know, like when when I think when TTIP died, that was probably the the last chance that we could see that you know, together with the Americans, we could create enough market power to set some standards for the time being. But you know, the new standards will be set in in China, in India, where there's simply many more many more consumers. And if you look at the you know, like the, our lovely our lovely um, German OEMs, uh, Volkswagen is forty forty sells forty percent of their cars in China. Um, Daimler and um, or Mercedes now and and BMW thirty percent. This is if if you know if if the Chinese market is not there, these companies are bust. Um, and uh, this and this this just shows how you know how dependent we are um, looking looking at the you know at the Far East and um, how important that's why how important the twentieth Congress of the Chinese People's Party. Um, uh, or the Chinese Communist Party actually is, and what this what this tells us about the future. It's um, it's uh, it's almost like a bit of a pessimistic outlook for Europe. There, um, um, I, I think to narrow it down, maybe as a conclusion here, um, you seem uh, justifiably skeptical towards sort of the protectionism models. It seems to be that we're going to see a bit more of that in the future as politicians scramble to explain away why we're lagging behind behind other markets. Um, lost opportunity. I absolutely agree on on TTIP there. Um, do you see, and that would sort of be the concluding last question, do you, see, do you see any chance that Europe realizes what would actually need to be done to, be, to get back to the front of industry and manufacturing? Um, is, is, there, is there a way out for Europe? There, there is, and, um, and it, it is something that, you know, in my, in my uh, current professional life, I, I advocate a lot for that. And uh, I, I believe it is, a, it is a super chance for Europe simply because, you know, um, like if we, if we swap a dependency on, um, on oil from, from the, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and neighbors to um, swapping a dependency on raw materials for batteries from China, 
um, nothing is nothing is safe. Uh, but there are zero emission technologies that are on the market that are market ready um, that we could that we could invest in um, and um, and use and you know to 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 also serve our mobility needs. Plus, these um, this technology is also it's way more convenient because it, again you know you can you can refuel your, your car in five minutes. Um, and have a much longer range than you have with a regular battery electric vehicle, and that is the um, the hydrogen fuel cell. Um, you know, we if if we if we just look at the you know we have a hundred thousand plus gas stations across um, across Europe, and and transforming a gas station takes takes about a, you know a million. If you transform a hundred thousand gas stations, probably like the scale price the price might go down, but you know this is this is nothing in 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 terms of investment comparison to the to the massive investment we do for the ev charging simply because the ev charges are used a lot longer therefore we need much more and there's even there's even companies who try who try you know have, you know very fast ev charging for trucks trucks that that drive around with a like 7 8 ton battery and and need you know, need a charging environment, and you you know what these these truck stops look like. You know, there's not one truck. There is, there is you know, a hundred or a hundred fifty. And if they all try to suck energy at the same time, you need a nuclear power plant right next to it to produce the, the energy. And certainly, this cannot be done, and just like with a couple of windmills in the in the area. So I do I do believe hydrogen is a future. Hydrogen uh, is a you know, can be can be um, sustainably um, produced. You know, using offshore wind in in even in Central Europe. But of course, it is also it is also a great opportunity for um, uh, for African, uh, Northern African, and Sahara, you know, Sub-Saharan African um, countries because they have they have the sunshine. They just need you know desalinated um, water, and um, and then. They can, they can become energy exporters. It would be it would be great to offer, um, you know, opportunities for the people that live there. And and you know, as as Europeans, we like to have open borders um, for for refugees. We should also have open borders for products that come from Africa. And um, and we should we should stimulate um, energy production in these countries so that they actually get you know good hard cash. For for the the energy they're exporting to you know to raise living standards etc. So I do believe the the you know creating a hydrogen economy um, not only for the mobility sector but also for you know for for chemicals for steel etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, is has has tremendous opportunities if we take global warming seriously and we want to have a more you know a more just and uh, and open world that actually. I want and I want my children to be, you know, to grow up in one and uh, and probably their their children as well. Jan Budinski, we really appreciate that we were able to go through different issues and also we have sort of an optimistic outlook that there is a solution for us to go down to. Um, I think we'll definitely eventually have you back to talk more about hydrogen because, I mean, the EU is talking a lot about it. There's a lot of strategies and then a strategy that gets scrapped and reintroduced. Eventually, people kind of lose track of what's going on. So we'll definitely talk about this again. Really appreciate you taking the time. 
Um, where can people check out more of your work? Uh, do you tweet uh, any any place where people can go to find out I, more about what I you tweet, do? Um, I tweet, but uh, I think my my preferred um, communication channel has has is LinkedIn. Um, you find me on LinkedIn at Jan Burdinsky. Um I tweet at Burdinsky. Um My company also has a has a Twitter account, uh, Berlin underscore Affairs. Uh, it's not it's not like juicy affairs. It is just political affairs. Um, so we are not commenting on you know on, on Brad Pitt or George Clooney coming coming to Berlin and 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 looking at local um, hotshots. No, it's uh, it's just it's just for political stuff. And um, and of course, you know, I'm also on any other of the social networks, but but um, LinkedIn and Twitter are the ones I use most. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the Consumer Podcast. Thank you so much for having me and happily, happily coming back. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow the Consumer Choice Center on Twitter at Consumer Choice C and all the social media platforms that are available. We even have a, a little a channel on Telegram there. So do check us out there. Uh, much appreciated. My name is Bill Wirtz and uh, yeah, see you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You just like everybody else. Pressure. You won't.